Well, good evening. If you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this evening. Acts chapter 2. We're going to go through the whole chapter, actually, this evening. All right, Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be. I want to start by asking you guys a question. I wonder if you can remember at what point in your life you first tasted processed sugar. Uh, you may not have a memory of that. It probably was when you were pretty little. Uh, I've got three kids. For each of my kids, it typically happened on their first birthday. We didn't usually give them lots of cakes or chocolate or candy during their first year of life. Uh, we fed them fruit and vegetables and things like that. Uh, but on that first uh, birthday, we sat them down and put them in the high chair and put a little cupcake in front of them. And uh, it's interesting to watch uh, them discover what cake tastes like, right? Because they'll maybe look at it for a second and you can kind of see that look of non-recognition. I don't know what this is. Maybe they take their finger and they kind of dip it in there and touch it to their tongue. With one of our kids, uh, they just sat there and looked at it for a while. We finally gave her a bite. And when that first bite enters the mouth, all of a sudden the facial expression changes, right? There's this look of my whole world has just been transformed, right? There's a new substance, a new delight that I didn't know, and all of a sudden this kid starts grabbing fistfuls of it, and it it happens every time. They'll just grab it, shove it into their mouth, and within seconds, the entire cupcake is gone. And uh, one of my kids finished that cupcake, looked down, realized it was gone, and burst into tears. And uh, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you ate a couple of Oreos this evening, and you finished them, and you looked at your napkin, and you felt a little tear trickle down your face, right? Because there's no more Oreo to be had. But with kids, what happens then is uh, the next thing that happens is they get excited. Uh, Some people call it the sugar rush, the sugar high. Whether it's because of the sugar or whether it's just because of the excitement of eating something that tastes so good, uh, they begin to act kind of crazy. And so I took my son and actually my daughters as well a couple of weeks ago uh, to Sweet Eugene's. We were eating donuts for breakfast, something we rarely do. My son began to eat. He ate about half of a donut and then he just went crazy. Uh, He climbed down from our table. He started running around, bouncing around, jumping on the sofas. He went to other people's tables and sat down with them. He's two years old, starts trying to converse with them at their tables. Uh, When he gets really excited, he has a face that he makes. It looks kind of like this, actually. He makes this face and his eyes will go back and forth and he wants you to make that face and it's a game that he plays. He just goes crazy. And if you've ever seen a toddler or a young child controlled by sugar, you know what I'm talking about. There is an element of behavioral control that happens in that situation. All of us are aware that there are substances that can control. There are ideas that can control. For some of you, maybe uh, you have had a problem at some point in your life with alcohol and you know that if you drink too much of it, it controls you, right? It controls the way that you speak, controls the way that you think, the way that you act and perceive. And in fact, as you look at the scripture, the reason that the scripture challenges us not to be drunk with wine is not because alcohol is evil in and of itself, but because when we are controlled by alcohol, by the spirits, as it were. We cannot be controlled by the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Uh, For some of you, maybe it is an idea that controls you. You wake up in the morning and you go to sleep at night thinking about one thing. Maybe that one thing is I have to get the right grade so I can get into the right medical school or the right law school or grad school so I can get the right career. And so your one dominating idea is I've got to get A's. Uh, Maybe your one dominating idea in your life is that uh, you want to get married before you get out of this place. And that drives your decisions and your actions. 
Most of us have something that controls us. The reason I share that is as you look at the book of Acts and as you look at the early church, what controlled them and drove them to do the things they did was the idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you've walked through so far the book of Acts, last week we talked about how Jesus, after he died, he rose again. He spent 40 days with his disciples explaining to them that the kingdom of God was coming and the king is here in their midst and he talks to them about it. They get excited about it. It is a transformative experience in their life. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. He finishes explaining the kingdom of God and he goes, you guys go tell everybody, see ya. And he goes up into a cloud. And this idea that Jesus was going to come back and establish his kingdom, that he had risen from the dead, he defeated death and sin, that controlled them. But we don't see that really bear fruit until we get to Acts 2, and that's where we are this evening. In Acts chapter 2, what we see is the Spirit of God enters into this new group of people, this new community who identifies themselves with Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God comes in and changes everything about them, changes the way they act, changes the way they think, changes the effectiveness of their mission, And now men who were once timid and afraid and hiding are bold and confident in preaching God's word. People who were selfish are now generous. And the spirit of God moves in and changes them. And that's what Acts 2 is about. Fundamentally, the book of Acts shows us that the church of Jesus Christ is a group of people who are empowered by God's spirit who are motivated to fulfill his mission, which is to proclaim to the world that Jesus has died and risen again. We do that in the power of the Spirit. Many of you in here, perhaps, are in the process at the beginning of the semester of looking for a church. Some of you, perhaps, have settled in here. Others of you are looking around. Maybe you're visiting Grace. Maybe you visited somewhere else last week, and you're trying to get a sense of what is church about? And wherever you settle in, I think often our temptation is to think that church is about the best programs, the best building, the best events, the coolest people, where my friends are. When we look biblically, though, a church is a place that says we are centered around submission to the Spirit of God, and we want to allow Him to drive our actions, our beliefs, our thoughts. We believe that the power of God resides among us because Jesus rose from the dead, and our mission is then to proclaim Him. That's what church is about. And so as we look at this early church, we're going to see a model in some ways for what we want church to look like. It may not look exactly the same because we live in a different time period. We're different people. But the driving idea is this, that the church of Jesus Christ is a group of people that says, uh, we're going to unite around telling the world who Jesus is, what he's done. And as we do that, we'll submit to his spirit to lead us and empower us. All right, so Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to see how the Holy Spirit transforms this church. All right, look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. All right, if you remember in chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he had told them, you guys go to Jerusalem and you wait for the Spirit to come. So what we see in chapter 1, they go to Jerusalem, uh, they choose a guy, Matthias, to replace Judas, and now they're waiting in the upper room 
where they had had their last meal with Jesus before his crucifixion. And they're sitting up there and all of a sudden there's this loud noise, like the sound of a rushing wind. And little tongues of fire begin to rest on their heads. And I don't know exactly what that looked like, but some sort of fiery flame is on top of their heads. And it says they're filled with the Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues. They begin to speak in languages that they don't know. Be as if we were standing in here tonight and uh, you are a native Mandarin Chinese speaker and all of a sudden you hear me speaking in your own language, even though I don't know a lick of that language. They begin speaking in other tongues. It says they're filled with the Holy Spirit. He fills them up. Now the wind often throughout the scripture is a symbol of the Spirit of God. Right? Wind often is a symbol of the Spirit of God because the word in Greek and Hebrew for spirit is the same as the word for wind. And what we see is that God's Spirit, God's wind, breathes in these people and moves among them in a supernatural way. That's the first 13 verses. God's Spirit moves among them in a supernatural way, in a way that can only be described by the movement of God. Fire, interestingly, often represents God's presence. Think about Moses at the burning bush. He stands before this bush and it's lit up in flame, but it's not consumed, right? Fire represents God's presence. And so you have God's power, God's animating force, right? That's what your breath, when we think of it, really does, right? As long as you're breathing, I know you're alive. If you stop breathing, I'm going to assume you're not. Now, in the early church, what we see is the spirit is the animating force that allows these people to do God's will. So they're sitting in this room, all of a sudden a loud noise, fire on their heads, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak, and this was in fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he talks about it as wind, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says when the Spirit comes, he'll control you. It goes where it wishes. That's what it's going to be like. When you're filled with the Spirit of God, he will move through you in ways that can only be described as supernatural. The mark of a church of Jesus Christ, of an alive church, is that they are moved by the Spirit of God to proclaim the mission of the message of Jesus Christ. They're moved by the Spirit of God to do things that can only be explained by the Spirit of God. Not necessarily talking about healings and Miracles every day, although those things do happen in God's church still today. But we are talking about the supernatural transformation of men and women who are enemies of God, who now become his friends. Men and women who can't comprehend the mysteries of God, who now can. And things happen in the church of God that can only happen through the power of the Spirit. When I was about eight years old, I lived in Louisiana. And as you know, if you live in Louisiana, hurricanes come through pretty frequently. So we lived there for a little over a year. And uh, we had a hurricane that came through our town. Uh, And I remember sitting in my house with my parents and playing Monopoly or something like that. And outside, you just heard this massive wind and this massive blowing. And you would look outside and there were 20 foot tall trees that were just bent in half. And some of them snapped like twigs. We had 90 mile an hour winds that came through. You go through after this storm and everything's drenched and these trees have fallen on the ground. You go, that's unbelievable. No human being could replicate that power of wind, right? If I were to walk out here tonight after this service and stand in front of a tree and blow on it, I can't do what that hurricane could do, right? And you might come out and you go, what are you doing? And I go, 
I'm going to blow it down. No, I don't think you are. You do not have that level of power. I can't take a bucket and pour it on top of the tree and simulate hurricane conditions, right? Or get a really strong fan. Nothing can do that except an act of God. That's what we see in this church. God begins to move and he changes these people from timid to powerful. And look what happens in verses 5 through 13. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished. Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. All right, this is on the Feast of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of First Fruits, where everybody would converge on Jerusalem and they'd bring an offering of the first fruits of their harvest. And so there are people, there are Jews from all over the world, and all of a sudden they can hear these guys talking about God in their own language. And I love the number of times in this passage it says they were confused, they were amazed, they were perplexed, they were astonished. Because only the Spirit of God could do this work. Now some of them said, They must be drunk. But they knew something was controlling them and transforming their behavior. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. As you look for a church, as you look to figure out how can I be involved in church, here's the key. Church is a place where God's Spirit is active, where the people really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that that's not a myth, but that he's alive. Church is a place where people pray and submit themselves to the work of God's Spirit and where they read the Word of God and they believe that God moves still today to draw men and women to himself out of darkness into light. It's a place that's alive, animated with the Spirit. That's the church you're looking for and that's the church you want to participate in. That's what you want to be a part of, to submit yourself to the Spirit of God in the context of a community of believers who are alive because of the Spirit. Spirit moves in supernatural ways. And secondly, the Spirit points us to Jesus. Look at verses 14 to 40. We're going to read a long section here. All right, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to the men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, that's nine in the morning. All right, and the idea is at a feast, people might get drunk, but they're not going to be drunk by 9 a.m., All right, it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, Peter looks back at the book of Joel and he says, this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of what God 
prophesied through Joel hundreds of years ago that the spirit would come, people would see visions, they would dream dreams, and all of that will initiate what we call eschatology or the end times, where now what we're looking forward to is the day that Jesus will return. Now, what Peter didn't know at the time was it was going to be a long time, longer than he thought. By the time he writes 2 Peter, he seems to recognize that. He says, all right, to God, a day is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. He's not slow. But right here, he says, look, the spirit has come. Jesus could come back at any time and God will bring his kingdom. We're not drunk. This is the spirit of God saying God is active and at work. And what the spirit of God is pointing you to is the person of Jesus Christ. Keep going in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, here's what Peter says. The spirit has come upon us. You hear people talking in all these different languages. You think we're drunk. We're not. This is God controlling us. And here's why. Because the spirit of God is pointing to Jesus Christ. And the reason all this is happening is because this Jesus, whom you crucified, rose again. God has vindicated him. David spoke of him as the coming king, the coming Messiah. And ultimately he says, look, David was a great king, but David was not the king because he's dead. His body is in the grave. And in that day and age, they still knew where David's tomb was. They would visit David's tomb. And he says, he's right there. He's in the grave. Jesus rose from the dead. God vindicated him and has made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What Peter says is the reason the Spirit moves is to point to Jesus Christ. In any church, in any group of believers, when we start talking about the work of the Spirit, when we start talking about worship, when we start talking about sermons, when we start talking about programs, all of those things exist to point to Jesus. I don't know if when you were a kid, you ever played like laser light show on your ceiling, right? Maybe you had a couple of flashlights and parents tell you to go in bed, 
but you pull them out from under your pillow and you'd shine them on the ceiling. You know, I, I shared a room with my brother, and so we would do this sometimes, shine flashlights around, and we would make little shadow dogs, you know, and bunnies, and dogs attacking bunnies, and bunnies attacking bunnies, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it was all about animals attacking each other for us. Uh, maybe that was just my brother and I, but uh, we would do this all the time, and maybe uh, you participated in this game, and it was fun, but imagine this for a minute. What if you went to see the New York Philharmonic, and right as they begin to play a Beethoven concerto, you see the spotlight start to move around the room, right? And you see a big shadow dog come along the front of the spotlight, bunny ears hopping by, right? Right in the middle of the concert. That would be inappropriate, right? You'd walk away and go, I don't think I paid that much money to see the spotlight operator put on a show. You don't want to walk away and go, that was the coolest spotlight operator I have ever seen in my life. Ideally, you walk away and you say, that was beautiful music. The conductor led them well. They played together in harmony. The spotlight operator, his one job is to shine that light on the orchestra. So all your attention is focused on them. That's what the Spirit does. Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is a person who says, my job is to shine on Jesus Christ. So you see him. So when we talk about miracles, when we talk about signs, when we talk about how cool it is to worship in the Spirit, all of those things are great, but they are not an end in and of themselves. And so a church that follows Jesus Christ will say the end is always to to point to Jesus, the fact that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again so we can have eternal life. If we're not pointing to that, then the rest is just theatrics. The rest is just extraneous. And so we exist because of Jesus Christ. I don't know where all of you are this evening in your own spiritual journey. It may be that you've never come to that realization. Maybe you've even sat in churches all your life and you've never realized that the church exists so you can know Jesus Christ and proclaim him. And if that's you, you need to recognize this, that you're actually separated from God because you've sinned against him, you've disobeyed him. Jesus died. God's only son died, took your punishment, and then he rose again. He defeated death and sin. And if you trust in him for eternal life, he provides it. And a church that is filled with the Spirit ultimately says, we're not here just to look at the cool things that the Spirit does, that the spotlight does. We're here to look at Jesus. That's what Peter says. This is about Jesus Christ. And look at his application as we continue in verse 37. When they, that is the Jews listening, heard this, they were pierced to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. All right, Peter says this, what you need to do is repent. In other words, for these men and women, remember he's just said, you have crucified your Savior. They say, what do we do? He goes, you repent of that. You recognize you sinned before God. You rejected your Messiah. You turned from that attitude of rejection toward him. And then baptism is a way that you publicly identify yourself with Jesus Christ so the blessing of God will come upon your community. All right, baptism is not something that Peter is saying you have to do in order to go to heaven. In other words, what he is saying is for you men and women, if you want the blessing of God, you want the spirit to come on your lives, you want the spirit to move in your church, you men and women publicly identify with Jesus Christ and watch him transform this community. 
Change your attitude about Jesus, right? But it's all about Jesus Christ. And what we see is these men and women begin to turn and recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for them because the Spirit shines a light on Jesus Christ. And then going forward, the Spirit makes the church effective. The Spirit makes the church effective. Verses 41 to 47. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, here's what happens. After Peter preaches this message, 3,000 people trust in Jesus because of the Spirit of God, and it transforms them. These people begin sharing everything they have. One of the marks of the early church was that they considered each other truly brothers and sisters. And in that day and age, you didn't share your house, your property, your stuff with people who were outside of your family. And so they said, because we believe in Jesus, we're family. They shared their things. They worshiped Jesus. They read the scripture day after day after day. And not only were these people transformed, but within a few years, the world was turned upside down by this small group of people who began worshiping Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit because it was the Spirit who made them effective as they submitted to him as they submitted to his word. He transformed this community. He transformed the world. And as we saw in chapter one, the gospel is now going to go out in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to all the ends of the earth by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts. Because the spirit moves through them and controls them. And I think our temptation often is to come to church and we think, man, if we have the best songs, the best sermon, the best chairs, the best lights, If it looks impressive, it will be effective. These people were not impressive by worldly standards, were they? Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Maybe you have begun to believe that if I speak well enough, if I'm attractive enough, if I'm nice enough, if I'm moral and I do all the right things, people will come to Jesus because I can try hard enough and do this. And what Paul says and what Acts 2 tells us is, no, unless the Spirit of God is moving, unless you submit yourself to the Spirit of God, nothing will happen. Because apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Apart from his spirit, you can do nothing. We're so accustomed to trying to impress in our own strength. Any of you guys have eight o'clock classes this semester? Yeah, okay. Nothing worse will ever happen to you in your life if you have an eight o'clock class. It's the, it's the bottom of your life. Everything's uphill from now, okay? Okay, you have an eight o'clock class. My guess is especially guys, you may wake up, you may roll out of bed, and you may show up at class not fully groomed, right? Uh, It may be that you just kind of toss on whatever pants you find in the drawer, whatever shirt, maybe wrinkled. Uh, You may not shave completely or brush your hair. 
Hopefully you brush your teeth, right? You may not fully groom, but my guess is if you went to that eight o'clock class this week and you showed up and you looked across the room and you saw a young lady who attracted you, that transformed the way you approached that class, right? You would wake up now each morning and you'd look around for some clean pants. If you couldn't find one, you'd grab your deodorant and spray it all over the dirty pants, wouldn't you? At least kind of press out that shirt. If you've been growing that neck beard all summer, you shaved it off, right? You washed your hair, you brushed your teeth, and you showed up ready to go so that you could impress. Ladies, maybe you do the same thing. Maybe you don't, right? Typically, your existence is impressive enough to most of the guys, right? You could be wearing a paper sack, and they'd go, like paper sacks. I'm good with that, all right? Two different approaches. Okay, one says, I'm going to try my hardest to impress you. The other approach says, it is going to be the work of God that's going to move through me to transform and change you. And we're so accustomed to saying, if I can work hard enough, if I can do well enough, if I can be moral enough, nice enough, good enough, if only the Christians in the world were a nicer lot of people, then people would trust Jesus, right? And that may be true, but it won't happen in our own effort. It happens as we come before God in prayer and we say, God, move through our church, move through our community because we are sinful and we need your grace because we are inadequate and we need your power. It comes as we submit ourselves to the word of God and we say, I'm going to study it and I'm going to know it, even though it's hard and even though we live in a cultural context in which reading an old book is not the first thing that we want to spend our time doing. It comes as we engage with one another in community and we say, I want to know you and pray for you and invest in your life. That's what the early church was about. And that's what Acts 2 calls us to be about. And as you look for churches, I don't know if you're going to land here. I don't know if you'll land somewhere else. Wherever you land, my challenge to you is find a place where the Spirit of God is at work and say, I want to submit to what God is doing and be a part of that. We exist as a church to equip you for the task of making disciples. And that happens, hopefully, as we help you submit to God's Word and know it, So we help you see what his vision is for the world. So we help you understand what it looks like to pray and to worship and to follow him. That's what we're here for. And the Spirit of God then moves to make us effective and transform lives. As we close here, I'm going to close a couple of minutes early. As we close, think about a couple of things this semester. Connect to a church, if you're not already connected to one, connect to a church where God's Spirit is working. Again, whether that's here whether that's somewhere else. Within the first four to six weeks, find a place where you say, God is moving. These people believe the scripture. They believe Jesus rose from the dead and they are working to actively accomplish his purposes. All right, there are some here in town. Connect with the church where God is working. We'd love for you to be involved here. Uh, Nobody gives me a pay bump for promoting Grace Bible Church. I'm here because I believe in it, because I believe God is at work. We'd love for you to be involved here, but wherever you are, find a place where the Spirit is working. If you want to check out our opportunities this evening, I'd encourage you to do that, and that's why I'm finishing a couple of minutes early. We have these tables in the back where you can learn about connecting a little bit deeper with our church through small groups, through service, so that you can be a part of what we're doing if that's the way that God leads you. But wherever you go, I challenge you to think about church now as a place where you connect with God's people and you serve and you follow the Spirit, and you connect with a community of believers who are doing the same. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you moved 
through your church to draw men and women from all nations to yourself. And we are still engaged in that task. And Father, it humbles me and overjoys me to know that from this room throughout the years, hundreds of men and women have gone all over the world to proclaim the gospel. I pray that that would continue. I pray that each of these men and women would choose to follow you, to submit themselves to your spirit, and allow you to transform them, and then I pray you'd transform this community into a group of men and women who make an impact on the world because we represent Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.